So today we're talking about the Nashville sound, which has had some criticisms over the centuries. By centuries, I mean decades, um, as the popification of country music, which I think everybody always thinks is a very contemporary conversation because it always comes up. Country's not what it used to be. Um, we've passed the good old days. It's more like a cyclical conversation. Do you know what I mean? It's like it keeps coming back around, the whole yeah. reinvention of the genre and pop- popifying, if, if that's uh, the word you want to use. Popification. Popification. Um, yeah, it seems to keep coming back around. And uh, But I think the whole Nashville sound movement was, that, I think that was the first sort of time that it, it got the popification of uh, country music happened. So I think it's a very pivotal, pivotal, pivotal uh, moment in country music history. Yeah, and it's 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 still a, not only a historical relevant conversation now, but that's more or less what we're talking about uh, in an extrapolated sense right now where we're making this criticism of selling out and going very pop, bro country, snap tracks. This the, there, There's historical precedent for this happening everywhere, and uh, it was first called Countrypolitan or the Nashville Sound, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Country, country music. So today we are, as we said, talking about the Nashville sound. So I'll take just through a, take us through a couple of points, just letting everybody know if anyone's not familiar with what that Nashville sound was, when it started, the history of it, all that kind of stuff. Um, basically, in the 1950s and the 60s, um, rock and roll was really dominating the radio, and that was the popular music at the time. Um, country music was sort of falling out of grace with um, a lot of fans. It wasn't as popular anymore. Um, so they figured they needed to reconfigure the whole kind of genre and the sound of the genre to compete with what was on the radio, which was um, rock and roll, and also trying to attract more of the uh, the youth market. And I find it kind of funny because if you compare like rock and roll that was on the radio to what the Nashville sound became with like, the strings and the orchestras and all that kind of stuff. It's like, to me, I don't understand how that would have appealed to a youth market. But I mean, obviously it was a successful um, sort of campaign uh, within the genre because it became extremely popular, but it's just funny to me that that was their answer to, to rock and roll. It's such, it's so not rock and roll. <laughs> I feel like it was actually more towards an adult contemporary kind of thing. Cause I don't think they were trying to be rock and roll. They were trying to be more pop. They were trying to cross over into something more mainstream and sell more records. Yeah. And if you listen to pop music of the time, not specifically rock and roll, some of it is pretty like you can't differentiate the difference between the country and the pop aside from maybe a bit of a drawl or what the topic is, but that same kind of like heavy choral choir background and string sections it's i don't know mainstream that's what they were going for yeah well and i i think you know they definitely achieved it um in, in what they were trying to do and it's funny because we talk a lot um in terms of reactionary things within the genre but or just within music in general 
And I, this was totally one of those reactionary things. And it, it's just, I, I do find it really funny that something like rock and roll, the cause and effect, right? It's like rock and roll caused this, like, which is, it's pretty cool when you think about it. And I mean, there's a lot of redeeming qualities to the Nashville sound and a lot of good music came out of that era. A lot of not so good music also came out of that era. Yeah, it, it was softening the edges. So if you, if you want to talk about the, I hate to use the word authentic, but like where, where country music came from was a variety of hillbilly music in regional southern Midwest, West U.S., kind of mid-South U.S. styles. Fiddle-based, guitar-based. Um, the, the word country music didn't even exist until the 1950s, maybe late 40s. I'm not sure where it was first used, but everything was called hillbilly music. And eventually that became, I, I guess, it started sounding derogatory, so it got changed to country music, but everybody referred to it as hillbilly music. And there was a style from Georgia, a style from Louisiana, a little more Cajun. There was a Texas style that was more kind of big band swing. Um, the, there's something we'll talk about in later episode that evolved into the Bakersfield sound in California, which also inspired a lot of rock and roll. A lot of people don't know that, but early Bakersfield stuff definitely had a direct line to inspiring people like Chuck Berry into what they were doing. And it's all, li it's all linked. That's what's so cool. Like we could go on for hours about this, like this caused this, this caused this, yeah. this was linked to this, this guy. And, and yeah, this is not the, even a Venn diagram. This is a web. Yeah. It's, and it's a very complicated web. Like some of the research, um, you know, I had some like tertiary knowledge on this kind of stuff leading into it. But, um, when I did like my deep dive research, it was just like, I, I felt like I was, you know, when people put, put the boards out, like when they're doing like conspiracy <laughs> theory research and they have like all the strings attaching all the photos and the boards. What's his like, name from Fox <laughs> news? Uh, Glenn Beck, Glenn Beck style <laughs> board. Yeah. Yeah. Or like Charlie from always sunny in Philadelphia on whatever episode mm, that was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, I haven't seen that in so long. <laughs> yeah, that's been me for the last week, like, just, <laughs> just in deep, like, and but it, it, there's a, so many like uh, the producers and the artists, and there was so much crossover throughout all of this. And uh, I don't know, it was a really fun um, subject to to Do really some dive research deep. on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm reading the most intense book right now called Country Music USA. It's got to be 700 pages. It's Oof. like it's crazy thick. It's a it's a big brick of a book, and I don't know, maybe a quarter way through it, a fifth of the way through it, and it's still very early days. But we're right in the middle where I'm reading right now is, and apparently this is like the country music authority book, like the definitive sort of history. The definitive history. Um, what it, the, my problem that I always have with with books like that and a lot of biographies and stuff is like they provide you with information that's. Uh, it's so like minuscule details, but they really hammer into it. They're like, well, and we're in the studio and uh, the janitor, old Bill, uh -huh. old Bill had three children, Mabel, uh, Johnny <laughs> and Hector. And uh, well, Hector went to school and you're just like, I don't need any of this information. Well, but that kind of stuff can be important because <laughs> if, if you're only telling just the interesting stories of everything, then that's all that really gets passed on instead of like the interconnecting webs, the, the, strings that connect the it's different parts. It's overwhelming though. It is overwhelming. <laughs> oh, it's it's so it, it's it's an intense book. Um but oh, Bill the janitor they called him. <laughs> Wacky Bill. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Funny you should talk about janitors because that's what Chris Christofferson was when he was at whatever publishing house they were at. He was writing songs and trying to pass them to to writers or to to um, to like singers as the, as the janitor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you imagine how crotchety Chris Christofferson was as a janitor? <laughs> Man, he would have been like a high as fuck hippie. <laughs> <laughs> You're just huffing like bleach. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, um, as as the hillbilly music started to evolve, it became insanely popular uh, to, to the degree that New York City labels were coming down and signing up artists. And they, they were selling in big cities. They were selling everywhere. So it really started to become a phenomenon. And you started to see it with um, radio shows across the country and also big events eventually when TV uh, came into it as well you would have like some of the famous ones would have been and these are all like Friday night or Saturday night shows that were on the radio and then transitioned into TV this is where all the big artists would of the day would have got their starts as going and they were finally on we now know it as best as the Grand Ole Opry which emerged as the most important player of all of these but there was like the Louisiana Hayride the Ozark Jubilee uh, the WLS Barn Dance out of Chicago, Cousin Herb Henson's Trading Post in L.A. That was my favorite. Oh, Cousin yeah. Herb. Oh, man. It, like th- That was such a important show for all of West Coast country music, and we're going to be talking about that more with the Bakersfield sound. I will also um, I'll go through that list when I do the, uh, the episode links because uh, I don't know that any of these are on there, but oftentimes if you like really search through youtube you can find footage of some there of this is. old stuff yep there and is. so i'll link some like choice moments from some of this stuff so everyone can uh can take a peek because they're they are fun to watch like yeah. it was those shows were just it was party time and it was so fun to just yeah and it was so entertaining like the entertainment value was like so much higher than <laughs> yeah than, you know things are now and it was so fun so when all these different um hillbilly sounds hillbilly music hill regional styles started coming together a big one was bluegrass that was it's named after the bluegrass boys bill monroe and his bluegrass boys who are from kentucky the bluegrass state and that defined its own subgenre of what then came to be called country music but th- these were all the western swing a little bit more cajun style um like georgia had its own fiddle style and that's something that was interesting finding out is that all these different states and regions had their own definitive fiddle styles so you could go to a fiddle competition which apparently were huge things and you could you could tell where someone was from based on their technique and style of fiddling which i think was pretty cool well and it's it's funny too just to throw some canadiana in there's like there's there used to be tons of like ottawa valley fiddle competitions too i have an old record probably right behind you there of uh of uh just a pure ottawa valley like fiddle and hoedown kind of thing and it's like again the canadian style of it was so different too and it's like totally and that would have probably had some like maritime canadian influence as well acadian acadian exactly yeah and there's like some of the most famous guys from back in the day like fiddlin john carson like this all i i saw his setup at the country music hall of fame um, when we were there a couple months ago, L- and who little known fact went on to uh, host the the Johnny, Johnny Carson, Carson show. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I believe I'm yeah. I'm like ninety eight percent sure. <laughs> <laughs> Checks out. Do, do not research that. I guarantee you that that was the same person. <laughs> 
fake news. <laughs> all right. What? Uh, so once once all that had really started to evolve and was selling lots of records, it was firmly establishing like hillbilly music as its own genre. And then as that started to have a bit of a negative connotation or started to see it as um, a derogatory comment, um, the term country music emerged. And as some of the rest of popular music started to increase in prominence and hillbilly music started to slow down a little bit, uh, I, I think the the competition amongst all of these different uh, like Midwest Hayride, Cousin Herb Henson's, Ozark Jubilee, the Grand Ole Opry, some started to drop off. They weren't all as relevant as they used to be. The Grand Ole Opry became the relevant one, the big show that everybody wanted to be on. It was syndicated beyond. You could hear it across the whole country. And um, it's, it's it started to involve all the different kinds of um, hillbilly music, country music. Um, and then when the whole genre started to slow down in sales and pop music and rock music was increasing in prominence, they started to have crossover styles where in trying to include more pop and rock elements in the music, particularly more pop. And if you listen to a lot of stuff in the day, just even like Roy Orbison kind of stuff or early, very early Elvis. You, you, you can see that like less of a country twangy hillbilly vocal sound and more of a smooth crooner. Yeah, gentle sound. More, a lot more polished. You know what's kind of funny, just to circle back for one second, when I was thinking when you were talking about um, the whole hillbilly thing almost becoming moniker, almost becoming um, a bit derogatory, was that... Um, or is that you look at now, like hillbilly is is back. Like, and it, I'd, I'd say maybe in the last ten years or so. But Talking about like, Earl Dibbles Jr. Well, and and <laughs> other stuff like that. Like you could even say like the whole like hip hop movement and like, but it's right. like this whole like uh, in the in the country music industry, there's like this whole slew of artists that are like they're hanging their hat on being hillbilly and mm -hmm. everyone being I'm countryer than you. I'm like more redneck than you. I'm more hick than you. Did you it's, have you heard that terrible song? Rednecker than you? No, I haven't. Oh, you would hate it. <laughs> it's it's on the it's on the well, charts right now. Now I'm gonna have to link it for the episode, so I'll, I'll inevitably end up <laughs> listening to it. But yeah, it's kind of funny. Like as things come and go, and, and cycles like that, it's funny that it's like things that were on the way out are you know come back in and and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, sorry to, to interrupt your your uh, your point there. I just wanted to circle back on that whole hillbilly thing. Yeah, no, good point. Uh, I don't remember exactly where I was at, but it doesn't really matter. We can start to move on and chat a little bit about the sound. So I, I think it's kind of funny too on the Nashville sound. One, one thing I picked up on was that like we were referring to it heavily. We've probably said the Nashville sound probably 30 times <laughs> in this episode already, but it's like that term didn't even come into use into like the late 50s yeah and, and after that it, it was, was for just, jim reeves right uh yeah it was in uh, a time magazine article with jim reeves um in 1960 um someone else i think it was coined in like 58 but then it, it was discussed at, at length in this 1960 time magazine article and then but the funny thing was is it wasn't even really 
wasn't describing it as a movement. It was to describe basically like the recording process, like the whole magic of how they did it with, and this is what we'll start discussing, I guess, is like the session players and the background singers and the producers and like all heavily produced, all meant to be like consistency in the sound. They used, you know, pretty much all the same players on, on every track. And, you know, they could churn out like, in a day, like the amount of music that would get churned out in those sessions was was wild. Yeah, and I was reading they were back in the day they were doing up to four sessions a day, just pounding out music, yeah. like working all day every day. And, if, and uh, hits got generated out of this. Oh, like totally, absolute hits. So I haven't seen any movies or documentaries about this about the A Team, but and that's what they were they called this crew of top ses- session musicians in Nashville was the A team and this was before the Mr. T show came out so <laughs> they they had it first <laughs> um if you've ever seen the documentary it's on Netflix it's called uh The Wrecking Crew yeah it's a similar thing uh these were guys in California they they did all the pop music in the pop rock in the 60s 70s think of all your beach boys kind of music what what was it even the beach boys they might have done their own music i don't know uh, i i forget all of who was part of it but it's a great documentary it was, it was the same essentially the same band that was in the recording studio for all these rock pop rock people and well and that's essentially what what this what situation the was for absolutely for the nashville sound and there's some some funny quotes that i was reading got kind of thrown around one of them's from um one of the guys from the jordan airs which was that famous group of uh backup singers. backup singers and they you know did a lot of stuff with elvis and a lot of stuff with everybody um but uh it was gordon uh stoker saying like the only thing on your mind uh to do uh was to do that particular song then you'd go on to the next one then you'd walk out of the studio and you wouldn't even remember what song uh, what songs you did um and then it goes on to sort of talk about uh, the whole number system that they use because they were doing so Nashville many songs. number system. Nashville number system. And it's uh, um, sort of gets credited to the A-team. And one of them saying, uh, Charlie McCoy, he was the first guy I remember introducing the number system to the musicians. Um, and he says, well, uh, I actually copied it from the Jordanaires. So it was like the Jordanaires came up with this number system. Really? Yeah, which I, I, I didn't what know. What does Charlie McCoy play? Uh, that I have no clue what, uh, where that came from. It was just kind of, oh, he was, what did he play? He was always oh, a harmonica player. And a harmonica player came up with the Nashville number system or no, 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 no. no. He said he introduced it to the A team and the singers um, were who? Interesting. Yeah. yeah the Jordanaires. And you know, um, Steve, uh, our bass, my bass player from my band told me about that and said, he was like, yeah, it was the Jordanaires. And I'll link this. This is a cool little thing that I was showing uh, showing you before we started. Is that um, they recorded with with the Jordanaires in Nashville? Maybe I don't know. It was I think it was like seven or eight years ago. Um, Steve did so, and he recorded a bunch of video of it, and it's pretty hilarious video. Like they're a funny group of guys, <laughs> and they were uh, they seem super awesome. And like uh, yeah, I'll link the videos to the, the Kingmakers, which is Steve's other uh, band, his rockabilly band, where they did all that stuff with the Jordan. He's also who, funny little side note, uh, produced, recorded, and produced our intro theme song. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah fantastic. We job played on did. that, but he did the recording and engineering. Yeah, I want to say, I wonder how many. Uh, Big shout out to Steve for that. Thanks, yeah, Steve. Shout, shout out to Steve. I wonder how many other podcasts can say that they played and recorded their own intro. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder. 
Yeah, I would just be curious. I've gotten some pretty positive comments on that intro. Yeah. And I, I still maintain I'm going to record that. I'm going to change, make that into a full song, and I'm going to put it on my next album, the All intro. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Better be called country, country music. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, what was I going to say there? Uh, what were we just talking about? We were talking about Jornaire's oh, uh, Nashville number, si- number System. Yeah, so just so anybody who doesn't know what that is, if... You, when you just have straight up sheet music, a lot of people can't read sheet music, like myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nashville number system is a great little shortcut or a heuristic, if you will, um, to understanding what, what where you're at in music, what the, what the chords are that you need to play. So if you're in the key of G, your 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 first chord is G because that's the key you're in, and your fourth chord is going to be C and your fifth chord is going to be D um, and that essentially makes up your 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 three harmonic chords your three major harmonic chords in a key and often in most pop music country included it's some combination of your one four five chords and then some minors so instead of always talking about oh we go G C D G C D in this one um, and then when you have a different song that's in E or D or F whatever key all you need to know is what key you're in and then what the progression is so you'd walk into a session and be like this is in the key of G and it's a one four five progression and then everybody's going to know exactly what has to happen because they're not throwing around different letters chords everything it's just an easy shortcut via a number system and, and so the point of all this stuff that we're talking about the number system the background singers the a team the session players is really at the heart of what the Nashville sound was all this was to create full uniformity of sound yeah. and churn out as much music as possible. It was making it a machine. It was an absolute machine. <clears throat> and that's when you use all the same players, when you're using systems like this number system, <clears throat> it's, uh, that's how you're going to do it. And also just that, that machine churning out that many uh, songs a day, that, in that many sessions a day, it's you know, bound to create hits, which it did. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would lead into a conversation about production. There's a couple really key producers that pretty much engineered this whole movement, this whole sound. Um, the most famous one I think that always gets referred to would be Chet Atkins, but he wasn't necessarily who started it. I think Owen Bradley is one of the people that gets often credited for pioneering or at least having the first versions of what became known as the Nashville sound. Yeah, I think he was definitely very influential but i i i'm pretty sure it was like him and chet atkins kind of kind of happened at the same time they were on responsible for two different labels yeah um but yeah i i think both equally as important um chet atkins which one do you want to talk about first um let's do chet atkins because i think he's probably the most prolific of uh of the two mr guitar the country gentleman, Chester Burton Atkins, <laughs> weighing in at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was, for most of his career, the head of RCA Victor, uh, maybe the most famous country music studio in American history was RCA Studio B on, on Music Row, 16th Avenue in Nashville. I think he built it. Well, not 
physically built it with his own hands. Blood, sweat, was, and tears. Was it was in there. It's production. <laughs> One hammer, a couple of nails. Yeah. It, it, it fell. It collapsed immediately. <laughs> <laughs> he huffed and he puffed. <laughs> Yeah, and he's one of also historically one of the most prolific guitar players in uh, not just country music history, but guitar history. Um, if, if, if you just Google top guitar players in any top five or ten ranking, Chet Atkins is going to come up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a big part of what like his appeal w- was that, you know, putting him in charge of this label was that he was a musician. He was a famous guitar player. They were um, competing with, with rock and roll. And, um, I think that's when his production skills really came into their own. Um, you know, when trying to appeal to pop and country, uh, audiences, um, they began to just really produce th- this, this whole sound. And I mean, he was largely responsible for that, putting together the A team. Um, and I, I mean, I believe he played, he was part of the, A-team. part of it. Yeah. yeah. So he, he played on a lot of it as well. Um, one really cool thing, um, he seemed like a very progressive dude. Um, in 65, uh, he signed the first African-American country singer, which was Charlie Pride uh, oh, yeah. to RCA, which is, is uh, a pretty cool thing. Um, what else? He's won like 15 Grammys. <laughs> uh, his last one was in 96. Um, well, I got a bunch of facts about him. He was a licensed ham radio enthusiast. <laughs> You need a license for that? Apparently. <laughs> I don't know what. Like, is there a is there a fine? <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, I, I know so little God about dang ham radios. Unlicensed ham radio. <laughs> yeah. They've gone rogue. Coming up the airwaves. Yeah, how would <laughs> you even chatter? police that? I don't know. Let's look into it. Do you need a license to buy one or to operate one or both? I don't know. I, I really let's let's look it up. His call sign was <laughs> was W4CGP, which stood for uh, Certified Guitar Player. I don't know what the W4 was. Anyways, these are useless facts. Um, a, a good fact about him is when he was a kid, he had really bad asthma and he had trouble sleeping, so he had to uh, sleep basically sitting up. And he would just fall asleep playing guitar because he'd sit up, hold his guitar, play it until he fell asleep, basically. So he'd fall asleep hmm. in a sitting-up position with a guitar in his hand, which obviously uh, contributed to his guitar-playing skills. And apparently he did this his whole life, fell asleep that way. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Uh, when he was in school, he'd practice guitar in the bathroom all the time just to, yeah, I guess he wasn't well, he's allowed to. just like to. having a shit? I guess, yeah. <laughs> no, he said... Uh, he, he oh, liked, so he could hide. Yeah, and it, it, it <laughs> I was thought like you a meant na- like an all-day, everyday kind of thing. <laughs> it was like a natural reverberation um, sort of chamber for him, but uh, kind of like a singing in the shower sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. I see. Oh, uh, he was. Uh, oh, a good story I have here. Um, this was an interview I found with Merle Travis. Um, so the story goes that Steve Scholes from RCA was trying to find someone that could play and pick like Merle Travis to compete with him in Capitol Records at the time. So at one point, he had heard Chet Atkins play uh, White Heat with Red Foley and realized that that was the person that he wanted. So he went all over the country trying to find him, uh, Chet Atkins, that is. Um, so he found him in Denver and asked him if he'd like to make records. And Chet said uh, he'd, love, he'd love to make some talking machine records. Uh, he asked if he sings, and Chet said, no, I don't. He said, well, what, you can't sing at all? And he said, no, I can't sing at all. And he said, you can't even sing a little bit? And he said, no, not even a little bit. And he said, if there's one thing I can't do, it's sing. 
Uh, so <laughs> Steve Schultz says, ah, well, that's too bad. We wanted someone that can sing and pick like Merle Travis, uh, to which Chet replied, oh, well, I can sing that good. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a burn. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Yeah, it was. It's a really. I'll, obviously, I'll link that one. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the story told by by Merle Travis, and the way he tells it is way funnier than the way I tell it. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a good little story that I that I found there. Yes. Yeah. Really, you can't sing at all. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess that that covers uh, pretty much Chet uh, Chet Atkins. Um, who else do you want to? I guess we might as well talk about Owen Bradley then, if, since we already mentioned him. Uh, Owen Bradley was the head of Decca Records, which was also a very influential um, label. Heavily, uh, he worked with a large number of female artists, which I think is a pretty cool story, um, considering we've done you know a full episode on uh, our favorite female country artists. So uh, he worked with Patsy Cline, Kitty Wells, Brenda Lee, uh, Loretta Lynn, um, and he actually. Uh, led the studio session that yielded It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels, which was pretty cool. This is a pretty revolutionary song uh, for the place of women uh, in country music because mm-hmm. it was you know, a reaction to, to another song. Um, yeah. So, yeah, pretty interesting that he led that session as well. And It I, was I, all in a Quonset hut. Yeah. Like the, that original studio that was in a Quonset hut that <laughs> was owned by him and his brother Harold. And that's where the start of the Nashville sound started to happen. Jim Reeves, Patsy Cline, Brenda Lee, Loretta Lynn, all recording in these. It, it's wild, eh? Some yeah. of those, because you you think about Nashville as a major city as we think about it now, but it, and it's funny stuff. Like I read another story, uh, the, you know, the song um, "King of the Road." Yeah. by Roger Miller. Roger Miller, yeah. Uh, that trailer for sale or rent, like yeah. that. That was a trailer that. A lot of them lived in back then when they were <laughs> when they moved to Nashville and were trying to become, um, you know, writers like songwriters. So like Willie lived in that trailer. Like I can't remember who else, but it was like a famous. You mean all together or no, no, at different times, right? Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, I think that I'm pretty sure that's what that that kind of song was about. That's funny, but uh, but yeah, I what else about Owen Bradley? Um, he kind of pioneered that whole, you know, putting singers out front using rhythm sections consisting of guitars, bass, drums, and pianos to provide basic port and adding background harmony parts or string sections, um, which the result being that it was, you know, a little bit more accessible to a wider range uh, of the audience. popification. The popification. Um, but I, I think his biggest the contribution. The first pop country. Yeah, the first pop country, the first of many. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, Owen Bradley's biggest contribution, or what's considered his biggest contribution, um, are, are with female vocalists. Um, he had top 10 hits uh, with Kitty Wells, collaborations with Patsy Cline, which remain kind of the standard which female country records are measured to this day. Um, Brenda Lee, who I mentioned earlier, had 12 top 10 uh, pop hits with, and I say pop hits because I guess they kind of were pop hits at the time, uh, with Bradley in the early 60s. Yeah, Brenda and, Lee was uh, a big crossover artist. Yeah. Yeah. She was cool. I liked her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the 50 plus hits that made Loretta Lynn a country legend were all uh, produced by Bradley as, as well. Um, at the, this is a cool fact. At the height of his studio's popularity, they were recording over 700 sessions per year. Wow. Think about that. Think about the intensity of that. 700 sessions a year. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, 
quick facts, he produced the uh, that Loretta Lynn biopic. Uh, the is that how you say coal, that? Mi- coal miner's daughter? Yeah, is how you say what? But is it biopic? No, biopic. biopic. <laughs> I don't biopic. know why I read it as biopic. <laughs> <laughs> like it sounded like a medical medical procedure as I said it. And I'm like, why is it someone two who words can't see very well? Myopic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then he did another movie, uh, the uh, Patsy Cline um, movie. I can't remember what it was. Uh, Sweet Dreams, I think it was called. And uh, yeah, Katie Lang. I like to make the Canadian connections. She recorded an album with him in '97. Uh, which went on to sell a million copies. Shadowland was the name of the uh, the album. And mm. He continued producing through the 80s and 90s. Wow. Yeah, Owen Bradley. So someone else that is very important to this sound, not a pioneer of it, but someone who really took it and ran with it uh, and really through the 70s was known as one of the more, if not the most reliable hit makers in Nashville was Billy Sherrill. Uh, I'd say he's most famous for... Um, signing Tammy Wynette and taking on George Jones. He didn't find George Jones. George Jones, of course, in his very early honky-tonk days, if you listen to, I don't know, the first five, ten years of George Jones, it's very Texas honky-tonk, Hank Williams Sr. style. And then uh, the, you, you can you can tell a shift once he's come to Nashville. I don't know if Billy Sherrill was the first uh, producer he worked with. I don't think it was, but uh, he definitely got a hold of him and you can you can hear it in a lot of his music. George Jones has a lot of that edgy piano, steel guitar driven honky tonk, but then you have these heavy chorus string section songs like From Here to the Door, The Window Above, songs like that. I love that from here to the door song. That's actually one of my favorite country songs. Yeah, it's a great song, but I mean, like, compare that to "And the Race Is On" or "White Lightning" or and any of the other styles that he. It's it's just it's it almost encapsulates the Nashville sound. Yeah, and we talked about this a bit in the uh, George versus George, our, our very first episode, where I think I mentioned how it's like when you listen to this entire catalog it's so different yeah it's so different all of it and it's yeah. true but that's was the longevity of george jones's career right is like he was around long enough to to go through all of these trends yeah phases whatever yeah absolutely so billy sherrill um really uh took george jones and tammy Wynette to next levels well signed tammy Wynette and uh made her what she was uh, or helped her become what she became. Uh, Marty Robbins, Charlie Rich, Barbara Mandrell, Mickey Gilly, Tanya Tucker, even Ray, people like Ray Charles. So there, there's, uh, apart from George Jones and Tammy Wynette, that also had like very country sides to them, particularly George Jones, or very honky-tonk sides to them. The rest all kind of a glossed over, glazed over, soft-edge, country-politan, Nashville sound country and all major number one hit makers. So that, that was something that Billy Sherrill had really become famous for was pumping out the hits very much in a Nashville sound style. But then something we also talked about in the George versus George episode that really went into the time where country started to go downhill really hard, where it got really tired of the popification, it was pushing into disco sounds, trying to cross over with like adult contemporary 1970s styles. And this is really 
what was leading the way for what came in the what came in the eighties with people like George Strait leading that leading that charge. All I think of from that era is like the, those like Conway Twitty videos that like yeah. <laughs> would always like. And I think people are more familiar with them now because they kept popping onto those stupid Family Guy episodes. Yeah. But it's like where their like sequined shirts were so shiny that it was like just blinding. Like it would like yeah. create those flashes in like the video. And you're like, oh my God, like what is this? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's so much cheese. Yeah, so, so much cheese. I think a good, uh, did you want to keep that? Do you have anything else to say about him or? Uh no, not re- well. No, he he kind of redefined the country politan or Nashville sound once it was created by guys like Owen Bat Bradley and Chet Atkins, and then kind of took it to another level. And almost some of these artists really also started to deteriorate what the Nashville sound was. And yeah, as we we're just saying, kind of drove it into the ground. Made it's almost it extra like they took cheesy. it too far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, which led to the next evolution of bringing more real country out to, to save like it's everything cyclical in a sense. It evolves, but it's cyclical. I think someone else who would almost be opposite to him uh, was a guy named Don Law. He was head of Columbia Records um, through most of the fifties and the sixties. Um, you know, he worked with Carl Smith, Lefty Frizzell, Ray Price, Johnny Horton, Johnny Cash, um, but. Prior to that, I mean, he had worked with Bob Wills. Uh, he had done like landmark recordings with Robert Johnson. So he had a pretty uh, long history. Um, but he was sort of a, a producer in, in Nashville at the time who would, the quote was, let an artist be an artist. And this is a little bit opposite to what we're talking about in the Nashville sound, but he was there during that time. And he was putting out stuff that wasn't as... Uh, overproduced and didn't have the string sections and all that kind of stuff. Um, he was working with guys, uh, like Marty Robbins. Um, Marty Robbins had a lot of string sections at times. Yeah. But he did that, uh, like El Paso, which was sort of oh, a, yeah. a very different, um, very different vibe. Um, what else? He did Johnny Horton's battle in new Orleans. Um, Stonewall Jackson he worked with. Um, but yeah, I think he was, uh, he was just a bit of a different voice at the time. And it, it wasn't like Nashville still had, you know, a sound at that time that wasn't necessarily all the, the strings and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think Don Law was one of the guys that I most want to say, like he was one of the guys that was keeping it real mm. uh, during that, that time frame. And uh, yeah, some, some cool stuff happened um, out of Columbia at the time. They eventually bought, uh, I think it was Owen Bradley's old uh, studio uh, in Nashville and opened a permanent office there as well. So everything, they're all connected. It's the web. Yeah. The plot thickens. <laughs> yeah, so m- maybe touching on some of the, the A-team would be good because these guys were so key to the sound. Um, for me, obviously, as a steel player, I gravitate to that first. And... Guys like Lloyd Green, uh, known as Mr. Nashville Sound, he actually put out a record of his own steel playing called that. Uh, that was his nickname. I think he, him and Pete Drake, I think were on, I, I, I don't remember, I didn't write it down, how many hundreds of recordings. Not the first steel player I thought you were going to talk about. Who would you think? I thought you'd be talking about Buddy Emmons. You know, yeah, it's so I think 
and again, if we're getting too geeky into steel here, I think Buddy Emmons is maybe the most prolific in terms of styles and things he contributed to the steel guitar. And I, I don't think there's many people who would disagree with that, but stylistically, he was never really my favorite steel player. He does a lot of weird, interesting things. He forayed into like blues and jazz and all kinds of things like that in ways that most guys didn't. So he, he was seen as being very dynamic and diverse and prolific as a steel player. But within the within the Nashville sound, like Hal Rugg and Pete Drake were more of my, my favorites as Lloyd Green as well, too. But Lloyd Green was very much that like very pretty, precise, smooth Nashville sound player. One of the greatest of all time. I think he's probably the greatest living steel player, him, him and uh, Paul Franklin. But uh, yeah, but Buddy Emmons, Jerry Bird also would uh, need to be mentioned in that, particularly starting off the A-team. Uh, and Hal Rugg already said, John Huey, all these guys. There's quite a few of them that were, you know, part of that whole, that whole team. And it's, it's crazy to think how many hits some of these guys played on like just oh totally endless amounts and that's just hits. like a, a a quick snippet of like there's all the guys like shot jackson and weldon myrick and everybody else that uh, i'm not even mentioning but uh, I, I think for me the key one particularly when talking about the nashville sound specifically not even just recording steel during that era but the nashville sound would definitely be lloyd green you know what i was reading um there's a guy named uh Jimmy Caps and uh, he was a guitar player and part of the the A team. I think we may have actually uh, saw him play in uh, Nashville at the Opry because he's he's still kicking and he's been backing. He's been a house band guitarist at the Opry since the '60s. So I'm curious if he was on stage at some point hmm. uh, while we were there. It's it's very likely. Um, but yeah, he's been playing there. Um, you know, he's played with pioneers like Roy Cuff as well as current Opry members such as Vince Gill and Garth Brooks. Um, so, yeah, I wonder uh, I, if he would have been there when we yeah. were uh, when we watched. Uh, we can probably figure it out. Yeah, I'm sure we can. Uh, so guitar players, we already talked about Chet Atkins. Hank Garland's a big one. Uh, Harold Bradley as well, too. Um, Hank Garland, I just constantly see him on, on the credits for all kinds of top songs that I love from that era. Uh, another famous one uh, that you hear about all the time. I feel like I hear about less of the drummers, but Buddy Harmon comes up everywhere. Yeah. He was, uh, what is he? I had a couple of songs here. Pretty Woman. Um, he was. He played the drums on that song. Um, Little Sister by Elvis Presley. Yeah. What else? Um, he was very influential as a drummer. Um, but yeah, I think he was... Uh, yeah, he passed away in 2008, I believe. Hmm. So similarly important and prolific, um, but on fiddle, Tommy Jackson. So I, th I think historically in country music, you would probably look at, of that era, the two most important fiddle players, and maybe actual fiddle players, because I'm not one, might want to chime in and correct us. But from my perspective, either... Tommy Jackson, who I think was a Nashville native and was like the fiddle player for 
the the A team, but another guy is uh, Johnny Gimble, uh, Texas native, and he was part of Bob Will's Texas Playboys and a whole number of other bands. Um, the, those those two guys are top. I, I think Johnny Gimble was actually listed as being part of the A team, but he's such a Texas Western swing guy. I I can't think of things that I know that he's on in very Nashville sound music. I feel like that era would have been very much um, him with the Texas Playboys. There was another uh, fiddle player, just a quick one. I don't even know how to pronounce his name properly. It looks like his buddy Spisher. Um, but just the funny story I have here is that, you know, he, he used to play fiddle for $10 a night at the local square dances. He, uh, and he was a fiddle player with the A-team. But he acquired his first fiddle by trading his brother a Coca-Cola for his fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a fair trade. He went on to record with Kitty <laughs> Wells, Elvis, uh, a few other artists. Fair trade for the Coke. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> Nice doing business with you, <laughs> chum. <laughs> There's that. This episode's Simpsons reference. <laughs> Brought to you by Coca-Cola <laughs> and Fiddles. There's another guy I just want to say because I just want to say his name. Hargus Pig Robbins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pig Robbins. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Piano player. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Uh, so yeah, he worked with, uh, with Owen Bradley and Chet Atkins. Oh, um, everybody. Yeah. And uh, he was on countless hits. I don't even know another piano player off the top of my head of that era. It's like he played with George Jones with everybody. The funny, the funny quote I have here from him is uh, while interviewing him, uh, it was clear that it might be easier to list the recordings, recording artists that he did not work with. <laughs> <laughs> fact. Yeah, fact. Um, but yeah, he played a wide range of piano. I guess you'd kind of have to if you were one of the few uh, that was in there. Another guy I want to mention, just because I actually hate this instrument, uh, and I feel like there is no place for it in country music, uh, Boots Randolph playing the saxophone. You know, <laughs> get out of here with I, that saxophone. I hate the saxophone too. <laughs> no offense to saxophone players. No, but not intended, and I think it has a place, but not in country music. Yeah, you know what? I just kind of hate it in general. Yeah, me too. Also, like the harpsichord, <laughs> I can't deal it. And I get that I play one of the most unique, <laughs> weird instruments that so many people hate as well too. So I guess. Haters gonna hate, but uh, we're gonna get like a slew of hate mail from saxophone. You know what, saxophone players, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> it just it it I, I can't get like an '80s elevator music kind of sound out of my head when yeah, I yeah like when Muzak Muzak yeah, yeah. Like, or like Michael Bolton Michael Bolton <laughs> Kenny G kind of like that. No Wait, matter Michael Bolton? Yeah, he's saxophone, right? Well, there's saxophone in it. I, don't I, know I was yeah, I was it. thinking of Kenny G. When you, oh, okay. when you said yeah, yeah, I can't. That's all it is to me. <laughs> oh man, I, and I I want to get around it, and like I like it in in some jazz, but uh, yeah, they use even this like Bruce Springsteen. When what's his name? Is it Little Stevie? Like who who plays the saxophone in the E Street Band? Yeah, it's the guy from Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I even there, I love Springsteen. And then whenever it comes on on a saxophone solo, I'm like, Ugh. nope. I know. Like this could be anything but that. <laughs> we, I can't believe we've never talked about this. Oh man. Um, yeah, it's, it's annoying as hell. This, yeah, this guy, old Boots, Boots Randolph. <laughs> Elvis gave him a bunch of long solos on his stuff. But yeah, it just, it comes That's in. That's not even country. No. That's just like being part of the Nashville A-team. Like no. I can't think of a saxophone. I can think of one saxophone solo in music I'd like from that era. Merle Haggard started to have a saxophone player for a while. Yeah, I didn't even, 
honestly, like I, I, I was okay with it because it was Haggard, but um, it still bothered me. Yeah. He's got a live album. Haggard's got a live album live at, uh, uh, what's it called? Billy Bob's in yeah. Texas. Yeah. And there's a lot of saxophone on that album. And I'm just like, uh. Yeah, same here. <laughs> so maybe we should round this up just um, if you, yeah, because we're, we're getting long on time here. So if you want to dive a little deeper into this, we, we've been chatting a lot about the how and the why behind it, where it came about, but some some key players during this time, if you just want to do a YouTube or a Spotify dive, and we're going to put up a lot of this on a, we'll, we'll do a Nashville Sound playlist for you. Um, but guys like Jim Reeves, Gentleman Jim Reeves, um, the guy who a lot of people say was the, the first or who, who the, the, the term was coined for, for the Nashville Sound, Chet Atkins, Marty Robbins, Don Gibson. Uh, oh, Lonesome Me was such a huge crossover hit. Um, I, I think that's pretty much what they were trying to do with the Nashville Sound there. That song's still pretty country, but took on a lot of pop elements and had, had a huge crossover hit. Uh, Charlie Rich, who we've uh, complained about before on this podcast, for his bullshit move on uh, <laughs> John Denver in the nineteen what was that nineteen seventy four burning his what was that Entertainer of the Year or, yeah 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 <laughs> or harsh Country Artist of the Year or something uh, yeah it, it couldn't have been a more hypocritical move because this guy is the most Nashville sound ever it's the the kind of songs like what was that like did you ever see the most beautiful girl in the world and behind closed doors, which we've mentioned before as well. Anyways, uh, also people like any Eddie, Ar- Eddie Arnold, uh, Ray Price, Webb Pierce, also George Jones, and others. Who who you did I miss anybody who you think of off the top of your head? I think like Furlan Husky. Oh I yeah, like him. he was. Uh, he, yeah, he was pretty prolific during that time. Um, Kitty Wells, Patsy Klein, Brenda oh, Lee, Patsy Klein, of yeah. course. Patsy Klein is hardcore Nashville sound. Uh, Marty, Ro- I don't know if you said Marty Robbins, but Marty Robbins, um, Hank Lachlan. Devil Woman. Uh, That's a good tune, Devil Woman. Yeah, I think we I, I, we might have brought it up in a past episode, or maybe we were just talking about it uh, on this live video, seeing Merle Haggard do an impression of Marty Robbins yeah. right in front of him on yeah. stage, <laughs> singing Devil Woman. So good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, we'll obviously we'll put together uh, a playlist and everyone, yeah, go follow. We also have a Spotify uh, account now um, where we're doing companion playlists for uh, each episode. So it's pretty cool because we're doing it sort of chronologically as we talk about songs or artists or whatever. And uh, it's a good way of just taking a deep dive into the actual music since we're not playing any on the podcast. So go check out the uh the Spotify account and follow it for updates. There's playlists coming out with each episode and we'll probably do some just in between as well. Yeah, we'll probably do some in general playlists that aren't exactly tied to an episode, but for now they are episode companion lists. Episode companion lists indeed. Excellent. Want to go maybe put on a Marty Robbins record and have a beer? I kind of really do want to listen to some Marty Robbins right now. We were talking about it earlier. I and, could totally uh, go for some El Paso or Devil Woman right now. Yeah, let's put on El Paso. I've been had a hanker and I listen to that song. All right, sounds good. Let's right. do it. Okay.
country, country music.